0: Okay, um, okay, so everyone's got their video off now. Um, I think I'll, I'll try to put my video back on. So, I think many of you are familiar with how many of these, um, later Kalam textbooks begin. And many of you will be familiar with the metaphysics of Ibn Sina, how it begins. And the general approach that starts with being, um, I think, is um, a a very broad but distinctive approach. Um, And... uh, I just wanted to very quickly and this is not the the point of what we're doing but just to give a very brief taste so to, to show you what a henological beginning looks like and the very interesting thing about the henological approach is that you don't have this kind of angst about epistemology and there's a very good reason for that and it ultimately comes down to the fact that because you are not starting with an immanentist ontology, or assuming an immanentist ontology, the basic, the primariness of sensible particulars, you, 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 there's all sorts of problems that that don't arise and don't really need to be sorted out in the first place. So Proclus says, this is very helpful. I, I recommend that, you read the elements of theology by Proclus and not the platonic theology by Proclus because that's rampantly polytheistic. And I think you'd all, um, if you're anything like me, uh, find it very difficult to get through, even though the metaphysical sections are, are, are quite brilliant. There's a, there's a, there's a story about, um, and I mean the general metaphysical sections, there, there's a story about um, why Proclus ended up the way that he is of course you know esoterists who believe that um the more baroque it is the better um will think that that's absolutely wonderful and just needs to be interpreted as angels or something but there's an actual genuine um and very large controversy within platonism between the approaches of plotinus and the earlier uh, representatives of the Platonic school. And what then begins with the Amblicus and begins later on, begins with the Amblicus and then into Proclus and so on. And Proclus being really the main um, arch hierophant of the whole thing, as he would probably call himself. Um, that's the Dodds uh, edition, yeah. Is it the second edition? Could be, let's have a look. It doesn't say it's a second it's just 1963 it's reprinted. Um, it's an absolutely brilliant book in any case so he. Um, probably threatened by the. By Christianity and, and the, 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 the way that Christianity was encroaching on the territory of of Neoplatonism um, and pagan religion in general. Um, Ambblichus and especially Proclus tried to revive a full full-blown uh, polytheistic pantheon which was not taken to meant to be taken symbolically or 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 as just representing metaphysical principles although of course he understands them to represent metaphysical principles but they were meant to be worshipped um, when well, and they were meant to be invoked and uh, uh, all sorts of uh, different aspects of theurgical practice, it was seen that the the real noesis, which the um, or, or direct metaphysical knowledge that the Platonists were after could only be achieved through the practice of theurgy and this marked a very, very massive difference with Plotinus. Plotinus doesn't have a trace of polytheism in him. There is an ambiguity in Greek about theos, um, where theos is, the word for God is thrown around, sometimes it means divine, sometimes it's used very, very loosely. Um, But it's very, very clear with Plotinus that he doesn't accept the real agency i mean his is fundamentally a theophanic metaphysics which is rooted in the one and and intellect which arises from the overflowing of the one and then the traces of the of the forms becoming manifest across the maratib of existence, but he doesn't, I, he doesn't acknowledge a, a theurgic commitment as being necessary to achieving union with the world of the forms or achieving union with the one. Um, and then of course, there's the famous controversy between Plotinus's student Porphyry and Iamblichus, because Porphyry, takes issue with what are broadly the theatrical practices of some of the Egyptian priests that he's encountered. Some people think the particular Egyptian priest that he's referring to in his famous work is actually the same one mentioned in Porphyry's Life of Plotinus, which is a very, very interesting. You you must go and have a look at Porphyry's Life of Plotinus if you haven't seen it. I highly recommend it. Please go and read it. Just go and read it. In, In McKenna's translation, m a c k e you must read it's absolutely fantastic in any case porphyry has this controversy with the Amblicus, who's Amblicus who's trying to then justify um, the practice of theurgy and yeah you know, they bring in um all sorts of texts um which are floating around at the time whether they be um the uh part of the Corpus Hermeticum and, and other important texts um, which belong to what are understood to be, in some measure, revealed traditions, traditions of, um, let me just let in, Jamal, traditions of, um, of inspiration and which were taken basically as scriptures by many of the later Neoplatonists and so they they added that in addition to what Proclus would call the Platonic relation, um, they brought in these other sources. Um, So so Proclus um, is uh, an extraordinary metaphysician but he's someone who um, you might not necessarily really get to the heart of the matter in what he's talking about when we're talking about metaphysics in this in this sense of general metaphysics if you go to the platonic theology but anyway that's uh, a very long di- digression do forgive me so he says um at the beginning of the elements of uh, of his elements pan plethos henos. every manifold in some way participates unity and so he starts with this principle which is absolutely incontrovertible is is the, this is the the way in which the Platonists managed to completely skip all of the epistemological angst that you might get if you start with existence. And he says, so he has his own commentary. Then he says, proposition two, all that participates unity is both one and not one. Then he says, proposition three, all that becomes one does so by participation of unity. Then he says, proposition four, all that is unified is other than the one itself. Proposition five, every manifold is posterior to the one. Proposition six, every manifold is composed either of unified groups or of heinerts. Proposition seven, every productive cause is superior to that which it produces. And this is, uh, we get the, um, the beginning of a de- deduction of hierarchy. Proposition six, all that in any way participates the good is subordinate to the primal good, which is nothing else but good. Proposition 9 all that is self sufficient either in its existence or in its activity is superior to what is not self sufficient but dependent upon another existence which is the cause of its complete uh, completeness proposition 10 all that is self sufficient is inferior to the unqualified good proposition 11 all that exists proceeds from a single first cause these all have his commentary with his with his demonstrations after Proposition thirteen: All that exists has the good as its principium and first cause. Proposition thirteen: Every good tends to unify what participates it, and all unification is a good, and the good is identical with the one. And this is the the unification of metaphysics and ethics, right there. Solves all of the so much of the angst of uh, of trying to work out the principles of the ethical tradition of. We don't have these starting points. Then it goes into of the grades of reality. I'm only trying to introduce that for anyone who's not familiar with it, because I think it's very important in what we're doing today to understand different methodological approaches. Um, I do think that the Akbarian tradition is very close to the Neoplatonic tradition in many ways, but it's important to also realise that many have assumed and assumed over the years that the Akbarian tradition comes directly out of the Neoplatonic tradition, it it simply doesn't. Um, It's even more extraordinary than that, which is that reality is intrinsically intelligible. And there are many things that the Neoplatonists got not quite right, but there are many things that they got right and they were basically facing a a philosophical opposition in broadly the peripatetics, although there are of course others, who for pretty obvious reasons had a very similar immanentist metaphysics to the later Calam theologians and to Avicenna, with many qualifications of course, um, and so when you read the Akbarians critiquing immanentist metaphysics, they're very often doing it in exactly the same way that the Neoplatonists are, but it's not because they took it from the Neoplatonists. And we know that with a large degree of of certainty because if you look at the books, like Kitab al al-Iḍāḥ fī al-Mahd, which is a paraphrase, by the way, of this very book, very, very influential in the Muslim world um, early on, and then very influential in the Latin world as De Causis, which is a translation of Kitab uh, al a It's a creative paraphrase of the elements of theology, but it's lacking, I think it's about 70% of the book. And there's an awful lot else by Proclus, who it's it's very difficult to exaggerate his his influence, Proclus on the um, not only all the Neoplatonists that came after him, but then the Christian Middle Ages and uh, and 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 also in the Muslim world, but obviously in this truncated form, and indeed in the in the Christian world in this truncated form until a certain point when the rest of his works are translated. Um, But there's an awful lot that uh, doesn't get true. Um, It's interesting that the henological aspect of the Neoplatonist becomes ontologized. Um, And that's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, And so we have very much a wujudi metaphysics in the Islamic tradition. However, again, with the Akbarians, when you look at it more carefully, you find that it's actually... A hen- logical metaphysics it's not a it's not an ontological metaphysics um but it's just by another name and actually of course you know the the al-wahda al-ahadiyya al-wahadiyya um as these fundamental principles you can't really get more henological than that that's what's really going on in the akbarian tradition the idea of exactly the same as epikeynotesius beyond being because it's beyond determinate being. Al al which is, you know, the of Al Absolutely, Molan Ibrahim. We will in just a moment, Habibi. So um so so this is uh this is very interesting um for, for understanding the development of our own tradition, also the theology of of, of Aristotle as it was understood to be, which was very influential, and, and that's a paraphrase of Plotinus's inyad But that again is a very, very truncated work. Um, you do get things obviously from the metaphysical tradition, like from the Neoplatonic tradition, like identifying Allah as al as the good, which does come into shaykh Al Akbar. If you look up Al khayr al mahd in al Makiyya, you'll find it, and it's that's that was in the scholarly tradition. It's important to realize that these great mukashafin would not themselves say that every single word that they wrote is from Kash. Part of it is from within a scholarly tradition. You know, some people get very upset by that. Um, but it's just a fact, I mean, ask yourself, why did al Akbar go and study 300 books with different teachers if, he, if, he, if, if everything he wrote was from kash Now, when I say it's not that everything he wrote was from kash when he says himself, everything he wrote was from kash that's not what I mean. Everything was inspired. But in terms of the scholarly apparatus that he possessed to put it down, of course, it's informed by his scholarly context and he very often refers to uh, scholarly debates which are ongoing and usually gives an extraordinary that uh, it's kind of miraculous. But um, so it's very important that what we're doing today is when we're doing nadar at our methodological foundations is that we, have, we become aware of different traditions, that we don't assume that everything is already known to us or that the great people of our past in our tradition, um, well, they did have it all, but there's a difference between truth as uncovered and as realized and the self-actualization and and perfection that those perfect men, Mela, give us the the share of the, uh, by his mercy of of their um the, the their uncovering of reality is is as good as it gets and but that's not something that's necessarily publicly available can we necessarily apply an experience that we've never had to to uh to, can we, necess- can we uh, apply an experience we've never had to, the, uh, to facing some of the obstacles to spiritual realization that we face as a result of the pressures of modernity, unless we have an intellectual framework which allows us um, to capture those experiences of true being, that those wonderful saints, male and female who um, had those experiences um, into uh, a a framework that that illuminates the philosophical context in which we find ourselves, are even the intellectual frameworks they they left necessarily capable of doing that. Not necessarily. And it's not necessarily going to be because they um, are Nartis in any way. They're not Nartis in any way. They're, They're absolutely perfect, but they went facing, just to state the obvious, bleedingly obvious, blindingly obvious, they went facing the same challenges that we are. And so, in any case, I can think of a good example, which we should really get down to reading. I just don't know what came over me. Um, but, um, but someone asked about henological and I think you, you missed, dear Ibrahim, the first session. And so ontology you might say is the, the study of being, what is being, what beings are there and so on. And um, and and henology is the the study of unity. What is unity? Um, what is? Um, I'm getting woozy from. Thank you for sending these questions. They're absolutely wonderful. But every time they appear, my my brain just gets woozy because uh, I can't breathe properly at the moment. That's my excuse. But um, I'll get to them inshallah. So uh, henology is the study of of unity of Tawheed, how things become beings by participating in unity um, and how unity constitutes the the ground of the intelligibility of the world and the distinctness of the world because if things are not unity and the unities and they don't present every manifold as Proclus said to henos. every manifold in some way participates unity. You can't envisage, you can't even conceive of a manifold unless it comes under a unity. Why? Because you wouldn't even be able to say a manifold. What manifold is it? You mean that one, the one which is under a unity. And so it's the, it's the, it's henology which uncovers the, the intelligibility of the world that accounts for not only the knowability of the world, but also the being of the world. And so in that sense, in the Neoplatonic tradition, rather than being, being convertible with unity, uh, be, being is actually posterior to unity. And that sounds kind of paradoxical and it is, but it's actually, you know, on the other hand, it's, it's not contradictory. Um, I mean, it doesn't lead to, to any formal contradictions blacks uh, it's it's very illuminating um as a philosophical path it doesn't mean that there isn't a harmony that you can have between ontological approach and henological there is um but but in, in any case um sidi sachi we'll we'll go on to the question about Theergy uh, a bit later on inshallah if you don't mind so sidi um asked if you would would you mind reading thank you Sorry, my
1: learner.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, you need to sit here. A Sorry. So we got up to. If you, if you could actually read just from the top of three, and then I'll just halt you at various times, and then if you could start reading again, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Forgive me, Habibi.
2: Diverse identifications of the nature of Nafs al made across various forms of later Islamic theology and philosophy. As we will see in this study, some identify Nafs al Amr with metaphysical entities like the Abyssinian alien intellect, or the Akbarian uh, mutual.
0: They say we can't hear very well. Can you, can you really, Gami? I think you have a kind of theatrical dimension, just really. Uh,
2: or the Aquarian mutable archetypes. uh, These types of theories, uh, though highly divergent in many important ways, shared in emphasizing uh, that human minds are fundamentally receptacles of truth that originates in an intelligible realm even more fully real than the world of sense experience. It is only through the mind's conjunction with that truth, by means of the effusion of those higher realms into the sublunar world, that knowledge can be attained for truth is, in essence, a metaphysical phenomenon. Other thinkers uh, adopted what can seem to be a reductively epistemological approach to Nafs al by suggesting that it simply refers to the truth judgment that arises from the intuition of both self-evident and speculative necessity. Uh, yet others made a more prosaic, but nonetheless ontological identification of Nafs al with the combination of the individuated extra extramental world and the mind. Uh, We would argue that this latter approach tends to beg the question in the traditional sense of assuming something that ought to be proved first. Uh, Namely, that the mere attainment of true propositions in minds can validly account for their truth.
0: Who knows what um, begging the question is in Arabic? Musadara. I didn't expect anyone to get that. brilliant. Did we cover that in logic? class? I think we did. Really? All right. All right. Thank you, Sidney. I'm one Um <laughs> I'm Huh? This, it's very encouraging, know. Annie. Uh, I, I thought I was just making a fool of myself doing these things. And everyone was just like, Oh, how someone wants to do another session, we're just gonna have to politely wait there. <laughs> it's very kind of you. But you're actually paying attention, it's extraordinary. Hamdulillah. Um, so truth as con- contained within imminent experience. So, you know, when we talk about uh, this reductively epistemological approach, um, which would be the standard understanding, mean, it really comes basically from the question, can the phenomenon of truth be accounted for by individual imminent experience? Can the phenomenon of truth be accounted for by individual imminent experience? Most modern people would say yes, because of the education that we have. They'd say yes. You don't need to think of truth as a metaphysical phenomenon. Truth is just some variety of a correspondence theory, if you want to really push it, which they prefer not to, for very good reasons, but... It's some variety of cards the theory. When I say something about the world, which I believe to be true, it's because ultimately there is some feature of the world which I can experience, which makes it thus. And therefore, um, uh, uh, and and then, you know, whatever variety of higher order statements we then end up making about that must be empirical thing are in some way reducible to the empirical thing um and so you know this is broadly speaking uh, the the very very broad standard view which is that we talk about truth in in science in popular science books in on television in politics and so on and what we're basically talking about is something which you you don't have to get talk about an unseen or a metaphysical world to account for truth it's just a very common sense basic thing that you know if i say asif is here and he's very interested, then, you know, I have a sense experience of Asif as a particular, which I can, you know, the particular is defined as the, as, as uh, uh, where it's defined lots of different ways, not necessarily necessarily logical way, which is but it, it, just I can point to uh, Asif, and so he's there, and then, there's various evidence from his facial expressions on which is suggesting that he's very interested. Now, um, so this is all, I've accounted for the truth of these propositions with purely empirical features, I don't need to go beyond it. And then um, there are various ways of accounting for other varieties of truth. Now, um, so this is what you would call the eminentist approach, Uh, what I've called here the reductively epistemological approach. So we can reduce somehow the concept of truth to something which rests on logical necessity. So ultimately, the principle of non-contradiction is is not consistently deniable because when you try to deny it, you're already assuming it's true. Otherwise, what you said wouldn't be possible uh, because you believe what you're saying is true for one thing. And not false, um, and so on. So uh, there, there's this understanding that the true can be truth can be reduced uh, simply to some type of logical necessity. Then um, now, the difficulties uh, that this problem faces are many, but uh, one of the most basic is that metaphysical principles already inform the domain to which you are appealing as putatively self-explanatory when you try to give that type of common sense empirical uh, account of truth. So I say, well, how do you know it's true? Well, look, here is the empirical particular that evinces those features, Um, therefore, that is that's all I need to there's a correspondence between my mental representation of this and and the thing out there. Now the problem is that empirical particular is a particular, therefore it stands under Wahda. Therefore, it, it, so it's it's a it's a manifold in a unity, therefore it stands in relations to other things, therefore, it must be a possible being otherwise it wouldn't be there, therefore. Um, it must, if it's individuated and distinct, there must be some essence that it's participating in. So, it, there's no—it's no good appealing to the empirical particular as if that provides an exhaustive explanation, because the intelligibility of that empirical particular is contingent upon all sorts of irreducibly metaphysical principles. Um, so that's one thing. That's of course. Uh, in large part, what this book is about. But um, then we have um, so you can, there's almost nothing you can say about a thing that has a a sensible referent. Um, And so what they're trying to do is give us common as putatively common sense account of what truth is, um, but that uh, itself begs the question. So we will argue that this latter approach tends to beg the question in the traditional sense of assuming something that ought to be proved first, um, which is broadly al Masadara an al Matlub, namely that the mere obtainment of true propositions in minds can validly account for their truth. That's slightly different to what I was just saying, because the way it's framed in that sentence is. So as to link it into the way that it's framed in the development of the uh, the way the messetel unfold in what follows because um when you're talking about correspondence so let's say you have a a proposition which doesn't have an extramental particular referent like a uh, a sensible referent like uh as if is a unity you say well Okay it doesn't correspond to the extra mental particular because I can't isolate that property. I can isolate um you know the the particular features of his watch or the particular things that he's wearing and particular uh, height and and so on and the, the the way that asif participates in the various categories but um uh, but but uh uh, when it comes to accounting for the ontological rootedness of particular of those nonsensible properties, there's nothing that I can point to in the empirical particular per se that actually accounts for it. so um so they would say, well, that means that what's being corresponded to here is just the mind. So they try to make it very nice and simple. al amar is just extra mental particulars and the mind, right? So, as we will see very soon, well, just being in a mind doesn't make something true. And what you're trying to appeal to is the idea that, well, there's a mental form of unity, multiplicity, dot order, imkan, conjunction, whatever, all of those things, of which there are many. I I just keep on repeating the same ones, because I'm not very imaginative. But um, uh, we can say there's a mental form of those things, and that's what is corresponded to. Well... What about one plus one equals three? That also has a mental form, but it's not true. So there's something odd going on here. Truth seems to be something beyond, when it's talking about abstract truth, beyond the fact, the mere fact of obtaining in a mind. So, uh, do you think you could go on here? Thank you
2: the importance of the question of the identity of Nafs al amr uh, particularly in the times in which we are living. The requirements of genuine logical rigor entail the insufficiency of the mere provision of putative proofs uh, for the tenets of Islamic creed. This is because even more fundamentally, our method of providing proof must be demonstrated to be sound. As we indicated at the beginning of this chapter, our contemporary circumstances dictate that justification must be newly provided for the metaphysical principles presupposed by our natural theology. Uh, How can we be certain that these principles and concepts, which do not seem to have reference in the physical world, actually possess an objective extra mental basis. This is an aspect of the question of the ontological status of intelligible entities, namely those that are not the the objects of the senses, but are directly known by the mind. uh, And of the question of if, And if so, how uh, they apply to sensible particulars so as to render the world truly intelligible uh, in the other sense of intelligible, which means objectively knowable. Uh, These are two of the most fundamental questions in all of philosophy. If the human mind itself is the wellspring and original ultimate locus of certain types of intelligible entities, uh, fundamental to the operation of the sciences, it seems impossible to escape from the implication of subjectivism which calls the validity of the whole edifice of uh, traditional natural theology into serious question.
0: So, um, why is Nasal Ahmad so important? The question of Nasal Ahmad, why was this identified at the outset of this project when I was asked by Dr. green Mahan uh, to look into natural Ahmad rather than something else? We were trying to find what are the most fundamental. Questions of today, the most fundamental. And so one is, is the status of, of first principles, which is what Dr. Green dealt with in his talk very beautifully. One is the question of definition and, and how can traditional definition, genus, and differential be defensible today? And what, what, is, what is the metaphysical framework which, which would enable us to demonstrate that? Uh, Definition that it, that, it, that it remains possible to know the world within a realistic framework, a realist framework, know the essence of things, and that definition by genus and differential remains not only a defensible way, as it uh, well, it's not only a defensible way, but the only real way to define to know the essence of things, not in an ultimate sense in terms of flow or things that are exceptional, but in terms of the uh, usual conditions of intelligibility and and the intrinsic capacities of the human intellect. um, And Nasser Ahmad was also seen as being a very fundamental
2: and very important aspect um,
0: of of, uh, uh, an adequately full picture Um, And, one of the most fundamental reasons for this is because the determining the nature of objective reality, um, one one of the most major difficulties that it faces is exactly the assumption there is this intrinsic split between knowing and being and this way of framing it was suggested to me by most of the I'm forever grateful for that, but but there is an intrinsic split between knowing and being. Somehow because we are individual knowing subjects and usually because we have some sort of naturalistic assumption that that the, the real world is this kind of undifferentiated group stuff of this nature and that we are these individual beings who have emerged. And we we, can't, we cannot but be imposing our way of representing the world onto the world. Now that makes a kind of sense. If we don't emerge, if, our, if the if, if intellect isn't in some real sense embedded in the nature of things, then you would naturally think we have to be imposing order upon the world. We have to be imposing the intelligibility that we believe the world intrinsically has and is somehow giving to to us in the alien. That would have to be imposed upon the world. Um, So this is a, so the question in that is, um, is extraordinary because it was traditionally framed as the question of how do we account for truths that we know to be truths that the sciences can't do without, in fact, which are many more than the truths that we can account for under a correspondence theory of correspondence in particular. How do we correspond, how do we... What is the nasal amal of those things? It can't be their imminent appearances it can't be just that we happen to find that I'm, I'm a person and I look at the world in this way through all of these representational categories and other people I meet who are also human beings also seem to broadly look at the world under the same representational categories. And that's it. It's the, Their only existence is their imminent existence. It's not because they are rooted in the nature of things. Um and so uh, the, 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 you know, the requirements of general logical rigor entail the insufficiency of the mere provision of use of proofs. Does that mean that we're doing something completely new and you know the poor um Aslav as just weren't sophisticated enough to to think about the questions? Well, that's the modernist assumption, and the answer is absolutely not. And that's one of the extraordinary things about the way that the question of Nassalama is framed, they did deal with that question. They uh, And that, exactly, when they, they're framing the, the, the central apariya of Nassalama, it is the question of, well, you know, the truth of a proposition is it's correspondence to Nassalama, but we have these whole shelves of, of propositions, which then seem to correspond to them in Asal amas that we can think about, which are the sensible particular and, and the mind. What else is there? That's all we can directly experience, surely, is the extramental particular and the mind. So, how do we account for the truth of these things? Um, so, uh, this is uh, extraordinary. They did deal with the question. What's different? What's different is the angle that we're coming from is now entirely different. Um, and that's because they were not arguing from a position of doubt and um, this assumption that the world is fundamentally not intelligible, and this assumption that is more intuitive and more. It's it's it, 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 it's almost self-evident that our intelligible representation of the world must be imposed upon the world. They weren't coming from a uh, 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 position of doubt. They were coming from just the fact that philosophy is whatever the definition is, that that's what philosophy is doing, is trying to uncover what is the true nature of reality. And so, when they come to a problem like this, it is okay, well, in this case, we also need to find out what is the true nature of reality. Um, And so it just becomes another question among questions. not a kind of terrible act, but for the modern mind, this is a terrible act. And that's partly uh, a consequence of the thought that comes. But it means that we are coming at it from... It becomes a foundational question, it becomes our justification for doing metaphysics. It becomes our kind of um, counter to what has taken on the life of its own and and, and what we would consider to be a terrible deterioration of Western thought that has become so ubiquitous and widely held that it's almost taken to be self-evident. So, including by many Muslims, and many Muslims today who will, uh, 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 are practicing traditional Kalam, will blindly accept all of these principles of philosophies of modernity which assume that reality is fundamentally unintelligible and that demonstrative knowledge of metaphysical truths is impossible.
2: So that's
0: one of the um, things that uh, I, I, I hope that fairly clear. Yeah. clear. We'll be going. Mm.
2: It is the determination of the nature of nafs al amr, uh, the domain of reference that makes true propositions true and in which the objects or states of affairs to which they refer ultimately subsist, uh, that constitutes the key to guaranteeing the objective extra mental basis. If abstract objects, alongside a broader range of intelligible concepts and principles, can be shown to be rooted in nafs al amr, conceived as an ontological reality, and can be shown uh, in nafs al amr, to genuinely apply to the world of sensible experience, the soundness of the metaphysics-based natural theology upon which the traditional Islamic worldview depends will have been borne out at the most fundamental of levels. Uh, It will have been demonstrated that they are truly objective principles of sciences worthy of the name. Moreover, uh, the traditional claim that the other sciences are subordinated to metaphysics and derive their first principles therefrom will find substantiation uh, for if the metaphysical first principles and abstract universal concepts underpinning the sciences can be shown to rest on firm foundations, uh, indeed to inhere in a level of existence beyond that of immediate individual experience, we will possess an ontological justification for our sense of their supra-subjective truth, uh, instead of being forced to find warrant for the, uh, those principles uh, phenomenologically in the sheer fact of subjective perception.
0: Can you stop me there? And I just put them in, this way, in this way, it's not an actual note. In this way, is the answer to the question: Are they true being? So going back to our thing about wudu al-haq,
3: means wujud al
0: evokes this idea of true being toes on, and in fact also includes the notion of. True being as imagined. And um, so, what we're asking really uh, is all of these abstract propositions, and abstract is <coughs> not a good word, will uh, all these abstract propositions, these intelligible entities, yes. all of these intelligible entities, are they true being? because the naturalist believes in true being, funnily enough, but says, well, no, true being is just, well, if he's really bad, he'll say it's just primary qualities or something like that, um, but, uh, but is, is broadly the, the sensible empirical world. So our question really is, are our metaphysical apparatuses Ultimately, do they possess true being? Not in their imminent form, because remember, the imminent reality of something is just insofar as I'm experiencing it, insofar as you're experiencing it, insofar as Maulana Siddhi is experiencing it, insofar as anyone, any individual human being is experiencing our intrinsically human metaphysical apparatuses that's the imminent reality of them and what the immanentist says is it doesn't go beyond that it just appears in human minds but i mean even the structure of the language suggests that it has a transcendent reality it appears in human minds well where is it before it appears but anyway it appears in human minds the immanentist says no that's just a trick of the language it only appears in human minds its only existence is in its manifestations The exemplarist says, no, that would be impossible unless it was rooted in being prior to its emergence in any particular mind. So that is the kind of fundamental difference there.
2: This uh, would in turn serve to forestall the skeptical attempt, uh, which has in the main arisen from certain streams and rivulets of post 17th century Western philosophy uh, to undermine the traditional metaphysics presupposed by natural theology. Um, it might also contribute to the prevention of an equally perilous uh, phenomenon, modern practitioners of Kalam coming to be intimidated by the skeptical challenge of modern philosophy and the apparently overwhelming success of modern science. Uh, such that Kalam, as traditionally understood, is undermined in finding itself compelled to make certain foundational concessions to the prevailing intellectual militant shogun of the modern age. Uh, Inevitably, this would lead to a subversion of their own discipline, enabling it to operate from these often uh, Pyrenist starting points. Uh, The aim underlying such a move might be to capacitate Kalam in a new role as a mere validator, a handmaiden. Uh, of an inductive modern science that aspires to the realization of merely probable models, but not to truth uh, as traditionally understood. Uh, One major stream of contemporary anti-metaphysical analytic philosophy has already self-proclaimedly met this very fate. Uh, Already signs of the gathering popularity... Can I just read that
0: note, I'm so sorry. So note eight on page 167 when we say one one school major school of analytic philosophy has already self-proclaimedly met that fate, number eight, namely that of W. V. Quine, 1908 to 2000, who developed the philosophy of the Vienna circle into his own nominalist, deflationist, behaviorist and scientistist anti-system and who celebrated what he viewed as one of the main achievements of empiricism after 1800, namely, Naturalism, abandonment of the goal of the first philosophy prior to natural science, and that's in his W. V. Quine, his irreverently named "Theories and Things," Cambridge, Belknap Press, 1986. He is widely revered as one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century.
2: Already uh, signs of the gathering popularity of such approaches. Among certain contemporary practitioners of Kalam, are sadly all too conspicuous.
0: Sadly all too conspicuous. Uh, for
2: the vast majority of Western philosophical history, uh, and for many up until the present day, objective metaphysical knowledge has been understood to be within the reach of humankind. Indeed, it was philosophy that served to validate the truth claims of all of the other sciences. Uh, as in the Islamic tradition, this view found some of its roots in theories of truth, ultimately traceable to Plato and Aristotle. And the Neoplatonic tradition that succeeded them. Uh, these shared origins developed in the writings of Avicenna into a distinctive logical, epistemological, and metaphysical system of an almost unparalleled comprehensiveness and maturity, uh, whose influence was uniquely central to both Islamic philosophy and medieval European scholasticism. Uh, thereafter, of course, the two traditions largely parted ways. This study chiefly concerns theories of the ultimate metaphysical guarantors of truth claims within Islamic philosophical traditions, the most valuable developments of which came in the period after the Western and Islamic traditions diverged. However, in chapter two, we provide a short exposition of the most fundamental features put out of the development uh, in the Western tradition of theories of the grounds of metaphysical truth. This is both in order to bring theories from our own tradition into sharper relief, as well as to implicitly frame the question of how these theories might be applicable to the dominant contemporary philosophical context. After all, this context amounts uh, to the degeneration of the Western philosophical heritage, whose roots extend back to a time when Western and Islamic philosophy shared much in common. Thank you.
0: Do you have any thoughts, anyone, before we move on? Let me look in the chat. Oh, can you come up and ask them, Yamilena?
1: Why it's new platonic, it's like new platon. I don't know anything. So, what is the difference between? Very new- what is the difference between? New- okay, what is the difference between new, Platonic, new Platonism and Platonism? Is it the advent of Christianity or? Thank you. So, second question really to the So, I, can, no, I mean, no. uh, when, you, when you kindly said that Ibn Arabian, like there is lots of conversion between them without any mutual interaction or like dereading reading one another. How, how would we reconcile this with Tahseen and Taqbih al So, how come they arrived at like what you see as like true or like conclusions without uh, revelation? Or is it because of the influence of Christianity again? Or because you can arrive at Nafs al Amr without? Well, because it's because of the
0: intrinsic intelligibility of reality. Hmm. Without which you wouldn't be able to recognize
2: the truth of revelation. Hmm. If reality wasn't
0: intrinsically intelligible, you wouldn't be able to find out if your revelation was true or not. It's not enough oxygen. Um, so um, it's a very important question, this one about, um, someone got their hand up because my desktop is just a, a total chaos here. Oh, er, it's actually, all right. Um, uh, the, the question about Platonism and Neoplatonism very very important now the neoplatonism is a term that I'm just using for um, for uh, convenience really because um, it's just w- well known to people but actually Neoplatonism is a pejorative term um, that comes from a particular historiography, a particular theory uh, about the history of philosophy. And this really finds its origin in the work of Schleiermacher who in the German context was responsible for um, a revival of platonic studies, um, but had a very difficult very different attitude to someone like Thomas Taylor, who was largely responsible for the um, for a revival of, of Platonism in in the Anglophone world, but um, but but he Schleiermacher was very highly influential, and he believed that the the dialogues did not do not represent a philosophical system. Plato was not a systematic philosopher um, and these are kind of searching um, beautiful literary productions which provide a dialectical method. Now it's interesting that Plato himself considered dialectic to be what we would consider to be Bodharna, he didn't consider that to be Jadali. That's a whole other story. But um but there's this kind of dialectical process. They're basically excellent conversations by very clever people, which basically ultimately lead to types of skepticism. Um, and that there's not really much more to, to it than that. Um, productions of genius, but, but not a philosophical system. And so when the Neoplatonists then came along later and Tried to claim that they were merely commentators on Plato and and they're kind of, you know, very, in the case of some like Proclus, very, very scholastic, rigorously logical um, philosophical systems. Their claim to merely be commentators on Plato and just to be uncovering Plato's philosophy just didn't stand up to reason. Um, and that came to be basically the standard view over the next couple of hundred years, um, and, or over a hundred years. And, um, and so, you know, this is the type of view that, that essentially becomes standard with the last generation of scholars of Plato. It would be people like Gregory Vlastos, people like, uh, Bostock, people like Dominic Scott, people like uh, Taylor, um, not Thomas Taylor. Um, and um, and so these are, uh, this is, when I was doing my undergraduate and I had to do my Plato module, that this is the position that I was given. Um, now, the Neoplatonists, as they became called, who considered themselves just to be Platonists, didn't believe that in the slightest. They believed in the first place that Um, The dialogues, and this is confirmed by later scholarship, the dialogues are only Plato's dialogues. You know, in the case of Aristotle, it's not known by everyone that the works of Aristotle that we have are actually just his lecture notes. They're not his uh, dialogues. In fact, Aristotle also had dialogues, very beautiful dialogues, apparently. Some of them are preserved in the works of uh, later thinkers, um, but all we possess in the case of Aristotle are his lecture notes and all we possess in the case of Plato are his dialogues, which were meant to be popularized which were meant to capture truths in in a in a very sophisticated manner, but a manner that would make it possible for them to uh, be understood. Via many different ways of approach. Um, and that. But we don't possess Plato's lecture notes, we do have some accounts of his lectures, which were very, very technical, quite a lot more technical than Aristotle, actually. Um, and so we have this tradition of the unwritten doctrines of Plato, doctrines which form the, the, the systematic basis of his, of his philosophy, but that can only are only hinted at in the Dialogues And then Plato says in certain places, especially in some of his letters, that he would never dream of of putting down his real doctrines in writing, and, and you'll never find him writing them down. He promises never to do it. Um, and so there's this tradition the way that the Neoplatonists saw Plato was rather like someone like Molana Sheikh Akbar in certain ways. Uh, I shouldn't really say anything about him at all, but but uh, uh, the, the way that he Saw Plato in that Plato is very unusual amongst philosophers in that his main source of knowledge was theq. And there's also uh, Abdul Karim al-Jili tells us that Al-Khidr used to attend Plato's lectures when he was time traveling. He would he was, you know, he, he would go to Plato's lectures. and that was a must. So um, so that's a very different way of looking at the type of person Plato was, of course, Plato, as uh, uh, Dr. Cream was telling me the other day is, um, is, is also in the line of the, of, of, of the hermetic Um, um And, and, you know, one of the, of course, um, I mean something very, very widespread in an account of Plato and the Isha'ati in general is that they took the ulum from the baqa'ya of the ulum of the ambiya, especially Sayyidina Idris. So that's a very different way of looking at someone like Plato, and and broadly the Neoplatonists looked at Plato. I mean, in a very, very broad way, they looked at Plato a bit like that, um, and. Later scholarship, which what's very interesting is that later scholarship has almost flipped the consensus on its head and and so that's why some of the books that we've mentioned before are in the bibliography that was posted. Uh, The trilogy by Lloyd Gerson, Platonism and Naturalism from Plato to Platonism and Aristotle and other Platonists is very important and uh, and and also jn findlay's plato the written and unwritten doctrines and then a article which he has which is the 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 three hypostases it's in here um the three hypostases of platonism uh, which is also very important in that regard Siddhi Satchi, you wanted to comment.
4: I'm um, saying that um, you know what's a metaphysical framework which you can use to solve modern problems. Could you and- shout as much as possible? Yeah. Um, so what what you said there? Can, can you hear me? I can now, yeah. Oh, okay. Saying earlier, uh, uh, when you said that um, our scholars in the past might not have shared the same physical framework or a framework might not have shared our metaphysical framework, yeah. Yeah, but what we need in the modern time is a framework that can solve the problems of our day, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just repeating you because you're
0: breaking up a bit. Yeah,
4: go on. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm wondering is if we if we go for a henological framework mm. uh, to solve the problems of the day, um, given that you know the, the, the basic principles of this framework, like the one that which is beyond being, um, to even understand that um, you know it's it's not something imminent. It is imminent in some sense because it's, everything participates in it, right? But um, it, it you have to take people there, right, for them to. Uh, see that principle to to really understand it, you know, they can't do that off the bat, right? You have to sort of take them there. So are we not uh, going back to an immanentist framework in the sense that, uh, you know, we have to start there and that has to be our support to get to that henological framework, right? And once we get to that henological framework, we can kick away the ladder, so so to speak, right? But then we have to, you know, start with the immanent, right? because uh, uh, even when you're talking about uh, unity you know you're saying look you know this thing there or that thing there right so to to explain the one and how everything participates in the one you have to talk about those things it's right? a yeah. very worldly kind of thing yep yeah. yeah.
0: that's a that's a brilliant question um the um uh, uh, and and it's very true um this is you know shakehabokarta would say what what this framework allows you is to is to is to see reality with no split in it there's no split in reality so we're not saying that the imminent is bad or it doesn't have its um place um we're just saying that the imminent is not everything that there is and that when you have a philosophy that tries to make it everything you end up in all sorts of disasters like ibn says every time they fall into a new warta, they 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 get out of one they fall into another one with that framework because that framework just doesn't make sense um but yes of course now on the one hand henology doesn't just mean the mystical vision of the one which we all hope for in an islamic kind of way um the, the 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 henology is also taking unity as your starting point if your first proposition your starting point in your metaphysics, of course, there's no real starting point of metaphysics because we're already there. We're, because just by being human beings who are metaphysical beings, we're already doing metaphysics. So there's no starting point. Like, where's my starting point going to be of metaphysics if I don't get the right starting point? But no, in a systematic uh, context, if you if your first if your starting point is every manifold participates in unity and it doesn't get any more basic than that. You're not starting with well-being as self-evident. Tayyib, say what? What are the systematic consequences of being uh, being self-evident? Maybe there are many systematic consequences, but it's a different approach. I would argue that you can it it lends itself to an immanentist approach it's not really transitive that insight it's like being self evident type of what then whereas when you say every manifold participates unity you've already started uncovering a hierarchy of being now there is a convergence because the, your immanent you might say your proximate principle of unity might be an object of experience in some way or other. But then you will be able to deduce that the next principle of unity that that object of experience requires must be transcendent. There's no other way, there's no two ways about it. Now, with the concept of epistrophe and, and praodos and the of precession and reversion and the, the, the concept of taraqi, of, 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 uh, and spiritual ascension and and in our tradition and purification, also in the tradition, uh, those transcendent entities can also be objects of experience. But there's a convergence between the uncovering of the intellectual framework and the uncovering of the mystical framework. So often today, you get what I call esoterism, which is not a very good word, but it's just the ism I like here. As, a, as an epistemological approach. Of course, we, we all uh, aspire to the tariqa of Kashf, I believe, or, or many of us, uh, but, um, but esoterism is not that. Esotericism is the idea that the only real source of knowledge is mystical experience. Uh, now that is sounds great. Um, it's very popular amongst uh, Sufi converts to Islam. Um, but it's enormously perilously dangerous because if mystical experience is our only real source of knowledge, then you may as well adopt the entire modern world. It's not a problem. Because that is there's this split in reality that is just like Al-Dunya, it's just Alam al Dunya, and, and therefore, you know, well, it's Alam al Dunya, you yeah. know. We just Deal with it on on its own terms and you know it's my mystical flight that you know that, that is um, is giving me the real knowledge uh, now of course the 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 real knowledge of real being is through mystical experience because the lo- uh, yani the locus of knowledge is the is the human heart which is informed by the spirit, and we want to uncover our spirits in Alam al-Arwah and be unified with them and then see everything as transfigured by unification with our original self in it. But um, uh, that's very, very different to thinking that Everything other than that pristine mystical experience is unknowable, is beyond the pale, is not really intelligible, is relative, could go either way. This one has their um, uh, epistemological approach. This one has their. We have to tolerate them all because it's ultimately undecidable. Um, and this is just logic chopping. You know, it's just uh, ultimately just nafs and and a waste of time and what you have to have is your mystical flight which is of course a wonderful thing that we all would hope to have sadly i've never had one but uh, and and uh, but i'm sure that many of you have but um, it's something that we all aspire to um but that is not the way of our tradition at all it's phenomenally dangerous it leads uh uh directly and straightaway to this kind of crass universalism, crass relativism, crass uh, unthinking uh, adoption of the modern world um, and, 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 and the modern uh, uh, view of the world. Um, and it's just not something that our scholars ever believed, not in the kalam, not in alim al tasawwuf not in metaphysical Sufism, not in philosopher. And so when people come and say, oh, this is the tradition because, you know, Rumi said that, you know, Akal is like a, a wooden spoon or something. Kanas Yani, look at all the other things he said. Look at him in his context. That is not what he means. He's talking about in, re- in, 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 in the light of, the, the, of direct acquaintance that uh, knowing reality from behind a veil, when compared with that, is, it's as if it's, it's nothing. He's, but it wouldn't even occur to someone of that time to say, oh, well, that means that like, khalas, this aql that Allah ta'ala gave us to illuminate our world is all, like, khalas, it's all subjective, it's nonsense. They they've never thought that. Um, and uh, so, so that's an important thing. Um, can't remember what we were talking
3: about. Is, has anyone else got a, a question? Fadal, Habibi. yeah, um, thank you so much. Sidi. Uh, you mentioned that, um, in the Aquarian tradition, the henological metaphysics gets um ontologized, and you said that in this henological en- tradition, being is posterior to unity. Um, so I wanted to ask. Um, so what is unity? What is the kind of the being of unity? Do we... Um, it, it, you, you you mentioned that there's no contradiction in this, but I was just curious if you'd elaborate. So is this the Henological tradition basically would say, instead of saying being is self-evident, it says unity is self-evident. And we we
4: proceed from there. Yeah, they're
0: self-evident. They're self-evident, not okay. It, it's Okay. Yeah.
4: Sorry. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Thank you. It's a brilliant question. Um often comes up understandably because it doesn't seem to really work there um it's a it, this is not a question of whether of course the one exists of course uh, unity exists of course uh, uh now it's not a question of uh, you know, being is a self-evident concept anything which is determinate yes we say it exists now this is Fundamentally, a con uh, a, a, and the source of the determinant must also exist. Um, the but but it's but this is a question of the so that's uncontroversial. There's no one saying, Well, uh, w- when we say the one is beyond being, it means he doesn't really exist. Malish, any you know? it's just a mystical thing you can't you can't understand, which I've ha- I have heard people saying actually, <laughs> which is uh. Not tenable, and I think um, Plotinus and Proclus would certainly be rolling in their turning in their graves. But um, uh, no, uh, what what this is about is the question of asalat al wujud against asalat al mahir. And this, as you know, is a very important and fundamental question in in our tradition. Um, Well, actually, it's not uh you know in the in the kind of uh narratives that we create it's a very important question a lot of people say it's a khilaf lafzi i don't think it's a khilaf lafzi um i i don't think the tahqiq is that it's a khilaf lafzi but there are people who say it's a khilaf lafzi what it comes down to is the following is there something is there a being if you like with a capital letter that um is primary, that all else is in some sense a determination of? The answer is yes, absolutely, but, but how do you interpret that? What is it about that being which makes it primary? Is it the fact that it's determinate? How do we come to know of being? it's through things which are determinate because then what do we call a non-being? If being is intelligible means something, then we have to know what non-being means. Well, non-being surely is the indeterminate. It's something, something. it's not there, but it's something which isn't there. It's something which isn't a thing. It's not distinct. How is something distinct? Distinct because it's determinate. Now, of course, the Mahatzilah said, and it's actually a very sound principle in many applications that in uh mutamayas thabit fa kullu in thabit. and that's a different sense of the ma'adum, and so one has to differentiate between al madum al-maht and al-Madum. Al not and and al uh, and so um, it's a very I mean it's a very complicated question Habibi. There, there's a section in here which is directed exactly to that question, but but basically what it means is the one is beyond being because the one is not determinate, right? So our usual What we what our experiential knowledge of being is being as the determinant right, but there is a type of being that transcends the determinant not because it's pure being pure being, but because it is a principle of ultimate unity. It's being is just an ara, it's just a, it's just an yeah, itibari concept. Being, it's being, it's this and that, I mean, it's not primary. Why is the, the one primary? Why is unity primary? Not just in the sense of the one, it's because it's only by participating in one that's that what in one or, or in unity that something can be determinate, right? You only exist as what you are. Because of your principles of unity, which enable that manifold to, I can say that's Oseir. It's not just this inchoate mess of hashakum, of, uh, of sense data. It, it, this is Oseir. he participates, there's a, there's a substantial unity, which is his individuality, but you also, you're rendered intelligible as a human being. Forgive me for doing this, I didn't actually intend to, it just comes out like that. That, it, that you're rendered intelligible as a as a human being because you participate in human nature, right? Um, so, be unity broadly is prior to being because it's by participating in unity that uh, beings can be beings. That's how they're able to be beings. So it's the principle of of determinateness. Um, is unity now? could you say that's being, you could. But when you really, in the final analysis, that's what that part of the book is, the meaning of being, if you, if you say, well, that thing is being, it's not unity, excuse me, the word being becomes meaningless because you then can't, then non-being doesn't mean anything. But if you call it unity, right, multiplicity, still means something. And that's why it's actually unity, which is prayer. Then you say, well, but the one exists and the one is the ultimate being. Yes, but it's not because he's pure being. It's because he's the one. His existence is just an uh, an artibari entity. So it's a, you know, so Suhrawardi, Mir Damad in our tradition, I think really the Akbarians were on this side. And then, you know, famously people like in some broad sense, Ibn Sina um, and many others on the ontological camp. Some say it's a khilaf lafdi. I don't think it's a khilaf lafdi, but um, whether it is or not, which it's not, um, going through the Masa'il is extremely beneficial. So there's another
2: question. Um,
0: Aziz. what's my what's logical like hating logic yeah like the
4: hatred of like just dismissing reason i i often find there's a kind of similarity in the kinds of shallowness at work in either of you from some people will say oh if the if maulana is saying that akal is like a Sometimes he has some very like gruff, like metaphors, like Akul is like a donkey in, a, in, in, in quicksand. But then they will look at that and say, oh, that means he's, he's basically just denying a traditional ontology or something. And I, I find a, simil-
0: a kind of parallel between that and people who would look at Sufis, who, the aliyah who critique excessive uh, emphasis on, on, on the fiqh exactly. mode of, of religiosity. And they'll say, oh, that means they're dismissing fiqh. I think there's a, there's a similar shallowness at work in both kinds of views. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, it's a very good parallel. Yeah. So he's saying that this is akin to rejecting the idea of sacred law uh, because of the the, what can go wrong with a kind of pedanticism about uh, fit and indeed. This is exactly what happens. um, About sacred law um, as well. Um, Then i'm just trying to uh, how can something be determinate from that which is not determinate. In so far. Trying to get this to move. Insofar as it is not determinate, or insofar as determinate, indeterminate does not apply to it. Yeah, it is determinate, but we don't know, it doesn't fit within our categories. And so we don't have an experience of the. I need that to be explained to me um, by Molana Mustafa, but um, uh, the the the, um, uh, the yeah, the good good question by Sachi. How can we speak about it being uh, having a source which is not determinate, and and by that we mean the indeterminate, and by the indeterminate we mean non-being, and we're not talking about it as non-being. It's the source of the determinateness. The point is, it surpasses any of our limited attempts to grasp it, and this is very, very um, akin to if you don't mind whoever's opposed to that question, could we could we ask it in. um, uh, uh, Could you ask it uh, uh, with your voice because I'm having a terrible trouble my my mouse pad is so sensitive I can't read the thing no, uh, well so it's so anyway, so, so actually's question um the, the 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 one surpasses any attempt that we have to know it that we can we, we can make to know it um and and knowing is very closely identified with being in the neoplatonic tradition so uh, something which surpasses Determinateness and that we're we're, because of our multiplicity, and this is very similar to certain things that Sadiq says, although on a very different level, but because of our multiplicity, we cannot attain to a distinct knowledge of that absoluteness. So that Martabat Al is not accessible to us. What is accessible to us is Mm. the Martabat Al the apex of mystical experience, according to many of the Sufis, is knowledge of the Aryana And that is possible because they are determinate in a way which, if there's a very advanced preparedness that I certainly can't imagine, um, then there is the possibility of knowing these ayanathabita, even though their individuation conditions are very elevated and very unlike you know, poor old Alam al Mulk, still they are determinate, they are finite. And um, so, you know, the one is unlimited. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's beyond being in the sense that uh, he's beyond any possible knowledge, and knowledge is very closely intertwined with being. Is that somewhere going in the right direction, or am I not going in the right direction?
4: Yeah, it's roughly in the right direction. I mean, there's more stuff to discuss there, but I'll pass it on to Osama. Yeah, no, it's a big, it's a very
0: difficult. Um, but, uh, but in any case, uh, uh, thank you for the question. I think it's helpful. Um, then, Maulana Mustafa, yeah, Habibi, Habib Albi, did you have something?
4: I miss you, Habibi. Does that mean?
2: No, Habibi, It was just a passing comment that um, uh, rather than um, deny fiqh or aql because it it seems uh, inconvenient or it has some afaa, but it's 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 haq, which is better than as you as you rightly said saying that, um, um, you know, we have all these um, systems which everyone is clamoring clamoring for. And and therefore, you know, we have to be, it's just a passing comment.
0: Hello darling. I miss you. I cannot see you but I can hear you. uh, I, I feel a Persian poem coming out of it. Unfortunately, I don't have the uh, capacities of, Allah, Allah. of Sidi Mustafa Aziz or Anwar or people like that. Sharibna habibi mudamatan, al Something like that um sidi osama can you uh could you ask your question please
5: it's not only uh, apologies for Thank spamming you, your sir. question in the chat whilst you were um answering no, no, not
0: at all it's just it would be absolutely fine but i just can't get my trackpad to work
5: no, that's completely fine. Um, I, I'll just read off the question as I, I uh, no, no. it, I guess. No, no, no. Um, this is um quite irrelevant to what was, or not exactly relevant to what was spoken just previously now, but um, I want you to ask if you could elaborate on the earlier discussion um on the knowability of uh, Hosan and Go. Um, so uh, on the one. Oh, yeah, hand, yeah,
0: yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. No, yeah.
5: So it, it's just like I've seen that there tends to be a tendency, at, at least in academic circles, um, to describe um, especially the Ashari tradition of being um anti-realists in the moral theory. Whilst, yeah. um, on the other hand, I've seen, for example, uh, Sidi Karim uh, Laham, for example, speaks of um, Ibn Arabi stating that beyond the akam of Allah, there is no binary distinction, but merely husn. So I That's wanted to right. ask, would it then be accurate to posit, um, like as per the latter view, uh, that the nobility of ontological truths um, include or extend to moral properties as well? I mean, how would we um, describe our um, knowing or the nobility of um, moral properties in, in that sense.
0: Uh, molana Habib Albi Sidi Krim, would you please consider um, just giving us a little bit of of, of uh, an answer on that, uh, yeah Moulana.
3: Salaam alaikum.
0: Wa well, alaikum wa rahmatullah.
3: I won't actually, Sidi. I'll leave it to you.
0: No, no, no! Please, you've written yeah. something on this, and
3: could you please? Could really... you do,
0: would you? Would you be able to put your camera on, Molana, please? Uh,
3: uh, I'm afraid I can't. But but do right. do, do carry on, Siddhi, on, on my behalf. I'll I'll try and think of a possible answer. I don't have anything on me. But you mind. wrote
0: a whole book on it.
3: Uh, apparently. No.
0: It's a wonderful book. I've read it. I told you it's one of my morning alard, alongside your Shahara paper.
2: I'll leave it there.
0: <laughs> Tell you, Yanni, I just say go back to Sidi Krim's book. Um, uh, now there are, there are ways of of uh, understanding moral properties to be. Um, Rooted in being. Uh, one of them is the Akbarian approach, which is very beautifully put forward in Sidi Cream's Being Good. Um, one approach which I like um, is the uh, broadly platonic approach, which is made possible by the identification of the one and the good. So the first principle, the source of all existence in Neoplatonism is the, uh, the one, and the one is, is also the good. Uh, one of the only things that we can say about the one is that he is also the good, al-khayr al maht. All the goods, which are the, the actualization of every being of every essence is the good specific to it. And, and they all arise from, from the good. And so in the, what you might call the henological ascent uh, um, you, you, the, the, the one and the good are identified. So every principle of unity is also the principle of the good of that thing. What that means is that the more that we unify, the more that we uncover the intrinsic good. So the more that we unify a society in terms of its principles of unity, the hierarchy, the more that it participates in the good and the better it is. So um, that is uh, one approach, which is being developed at the moment. Um, Gerson's latest book is called Plato's Moral Realism. And uh, that's what he's working on at the moment. And, um, but in his Platonism and Naturalism, there's a section where he, ha- there's a beautiful section, where he starts to identify where, where he, he, he unpacks what is basically implicit in the idea that the uh, in the identification of the one and the good, and he says that the the, the virtuous, the ethically defensible, the good, the morally upright in every context, in every case can be identified, actually, with the greater integrative unity. For example, in a traditional Islamic understanding, you know, uh, if we, the more that we fully actualize our human nature, the better it is. It's better for someone to actualize their spiritual capacity it's better for that spiritual capacity to serve as it should as the principle of unity and the governing principle of unity for the you know that the, the, the regulates desire that regulates spiritedness which is the you know, the the the, um, the natural impulse we have to Right or wrong. Um, It's better for them to be subordinated to their principle of unity. It's better for us to actualize our nature in every possible way in marriage, in, um, I mean, our our model, and and this is made much more intelligible in terms of the Islamic revelation. Our model is the Prophet who actualizes the perfection of human nature in every dimension, because he is a husband, he is a warrior, he is a, um, he is a, musharjer. can you say he's a musharri' You can say he's a musharri' he is a ruler, uh, he is a father, and all of these different things and so he has a, a the, the the fullness of the actualization of everything which is contained in the fullness of human nature which is the principle of unity which is actually Al-Hakim um that is that ascent to that principle of unity in its fullness is also the ascent to the good that's that's yeah, I, mean, I think we're, we've probably gone way off um, I, I mean, we may need more uh, in order to understand this, but, um, but all that in any way participates, the good is subordinate to the primal good, which is nothing else but good. And there's, um, that's in proposition eight. In any case, there's that platonic principle which which could provide. I mean, in the Islamic tradition, yes, you do have a, a very difficult problem um, in uh, interpretations of the Ashari position, which seem like radical voluntarism, where there's nothing intrinsically good or evil about anything. And it's just because Allah said, this thing is good, that it's good, otherwise there's nothing good about it, whatsoever, intrinsically. Um, that is actually really a misinterpretation of their Shelly position. Um, and, but, but, you know, things become much richer as they always do when you look at it from an akbarian position, um, because moral uh, phenomena, Facts and propositions and so on are within the scheme of the of of Tajalliyat of the of Mavahir, and so there are certainly intrinsic goods in a certain way, in so far as Alasmanajala himself is. Pure goodness and existence is pure goodness, and and, non existence is pure evil. And determinations of Allah's nature in creation also are intrinsically good insofar as they are mavahed of that nature. And then their privations are where evil starts to emerge. But anyway, I don't want to talk about that, mashup that I don't really understand.
3: I, wish CD, I, I, I think <clears throat> just from the Islamic point of view it can be simplified to the hadith of the Prophet, ﷺ, okay. you know, which is which is essentially pure metaphysics. Well, إليك, uh, mm. Which shows that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, المح, and uh, that's all there is to it. And everything really flows from there, there on. Also the various ayat of the Qur'an. Which show this, you know, and etc. 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 And so there is a there is a contiguity between the two. Yeah. Um, in understanding how do we get to this idea of uh existence. Uh, uh, or manifest, let's say, manifestation. As we we become, in one sense, further from the source, there is the possibility of evil. Mm-hmm. That goes into theodicy and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it could be. It, it's a much simpler uh, idea that can be mm. examined from from a Quranic and a Hadith perspective. Yeah, uh, and I think that's what the beauty of Sheikh Akbar is that he uses those are his uh those are his sources yeah for how he weaves uh choreographs together these kind of statements yeah absolutely. So, um without Certainly. getting into sort of hymnological issues and
0: yeah of course it's uh, it's it's, it's islamic uh,
3: perspective it's right? much more
0: that. profound than that absolutely i agree with you um i wouldn't say basic necessarily but i understand what you mean but um but the uh but but uh uh, there are all sorts of things which are profound difficulties to what is usually understood to be the Asheri view, Melana. And um, I mean, one of them is is the phenomenon of the fitra. I mean, the fitra you will often find defined as that in the human being which innately inclines to the good and 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 the and the true. So it's very ha- hard to understand how that works with Asheri voluntaryism. Then you have things like, you know, ya morona bil ma'arufiyan houna al munkar. But well, that's just convention, yani. Al Maruf is just convention. Til Maruf, yani. It's it's something which is seen. And but in any case, Alaykum bi Kitab Sidi Karem. It's a wonderful book, and uh, you'll find the, the better answers there. Inshallah, ta'ala. Do we have more messages here? Oh, from Sidi Satri. If being is equated with pure good, then how do we? Uh, 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 where is it then how do we explain people going to hell um because they don't have real being so I'm saying, I want to, yeah well being is a, is a uh, hell is a state it's a real place but it's also a state of maximal distance from ta'ala. it's a place where the the, the, the the illusion that people live their lives in becomes concrete when there is where the the images, which in this life, if we're unfortunate, we attach ourselves to, which which are not true being, and which we mistake for true being, well, when the sphere of free choice ends and our meaning, which is timeless, emerges, then it will be attached to realities which don't have very much real being in them, which are very distant from Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala, the, the multiplication of Qiyud which distance us from seeing the pure Tawheed, um uh, Yani one when, when beloved becomes stuck in that in that reality uh when we say non-existence, you know, is pure evil and, and being is pure good, well, there's, there's no such thing as pure non-existence. Uh, everything has some degree of weak participation in being, and that's why there will still be some, dare I say it, some takhfif. Um, of course, Allah says, <inaudible> but there's also hadith which talks about how Abu Lahab will be given a drink of water through his thumb, I believe, Um every Monday or because of the um, w- uh, one good act that he did to the Prophet Islam, you know, might be cited in that regard. So, um, so where does it say Hill has to be absolutely pure, 100% unadulterated either? we have that hadith for example so there and uh, another proof of that which is qatar is that there are they're a maratib in, of hell if they if the if, if, if hell was pure 100 percent maximum they wouldn't get to be maratib so there is some more good in the well i don't want to go there but there, there is more good in the excuse me the better parts of hell didn't really say that but just for the sake of illustration there is more good in the better parts of hell than in the in the dark asphalt you can say that because um, it's obviously the case I mean it's, it's not it's it's still out there but it's still awful but it's uh, if we were to say it's pure evil then we're making another principle alongside Allah La isn't it we're not Zoroastrians um we're not magians rather because I know there's some who might object to me saying that about Zoroastrians, but we're not Magians and um, we don't have two principles, one of good and one of evil. So there's always some degree of rahmah. Wa um, kulla Also Sidi, I mean,
3: yeah. Waj- wajhullah uh, is the haqiqah of Allah and that is everywhere. Hmm. So um you can never have somewhere where law is not there. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure, sure,
0: yeah. No. Pure yeah. evil is impossible. Yeah. <laughs> is there someone with their hand up there? Sidi secretary. Shraddal.
4: Yeah, Sidi. Just uh, I'm I'm trying to sort of link things together. Um and I, I posted a picture of um uh, well, just a screenshot of a diagram from uh, Shaykh Al-Atas' uh, uh, the end chapter. Right. Um, uh, right. And I'm trying to figure out, like, when you say the one in, in the in heneological perspective, the, the, the platonic perspective, uh, do you mean, uh, and I'm trying to link it here, right? Do you I, can't, mean, um, I can't open it, unfortunately, but yeah, good, do go on. Yeah. yeah. Do, uh, do you mean, uh, um, where is it? Uh, as an absolute uh, oneness, right? is that what you mean so in which sense it is that that links it to the hidden treasure right Hmm. uh concept um meaning on the unmanifest right or not yet manifest so to speak right yeah well the hidden treasure is 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 the beginning of
0: of multiplicity because that is um al-mahabba al but But al taayyun is what I would identify in some sense as, as the one, at least in a conceptual framework, because, um, and of course, you know, there, there are different, some people put ahadiyya second and they put wahadith. I mean, there are different, but the, the, what I'm talking about is the scheme in which al-Ahadiyya is the martabat al-la-ta'ayun and then al-wahda is the bridge, the barzakh um, uh, uh, out of which al-wahadiyya emerges and the wahda is identified with al-haqiq al-Muhammadiyya um, and it's through the haqiq al-Muhammadiyya that the wahadiyya which is the emergence of the sifat quadeterminate, becomes possible um, but martaba ta la is that which we can have no knowledge of that we can have no description of that we can have no direct knowledge of and that is very similar in many ways and it goes way beyond plotinus's account there's no doubt about that i'm not just saying that but but but, but it's very similar in many ways to plotinus's distinction between the one which is the absolutely simple principle of unity of which we can have no knowledge and the martaba the hypostasis of uh, intellect, which is where all the forms become manifest distinctly,
4: so okay, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it'd be nice to get a sort of um, a correspondence, you know, uh, between let's say this diagram in Atas's book, uh, because I think he derives it from uh, uh, Jamie and uh, Julie's book, all right, uh, maybe I'll be very really kind if
0: you, you could send it um, to the group, yeah. And then we'll be able to yeah, look I'll look it. uh there's a few little things in the book, um, where on page 126, uh, this is God as Al-Ahadiyya, exclusive unity, the absolute principle of unity, which according to al qaisri is the essence of existence, al wujud in itself, the first determination of al Awal, which is Al-Wahda determinate unity, the unified principle of the emergence of multiplicity. Upon which the unfolding of creation depends, is also accounted for in terms of unity as the first finite determination of the infinite divine plenitude, such that we might capture its meta principal, intelligible unity in the term infinity limit, and indeed the most perfect such determination possible, namely al haqiq al muhammadiyya, blessings and peace be upon him. The second determination, ta'iyun etherni al unified multiplicity, represents the actual distinct emergence of the specific principles of all subsequent multiplicity and so on. Uh, This is actually in the section about when it says um, a short excursus on unity and being on page 120. That might be of interest. We'll we'll get there and challenge it. I think we better um, come to a close now. I've just noticed that it's 8.44. Uh, Thank you so much everyone for bearing with us um, in a somewhat chaotic presentation. I did break my ribs tumbling down a hill last week, so if that's any excuse, then you know give your brother many excuses. but uh, is there any, if there are any other pressing questions, then we could discuss for another five, ten minutes. But if not, then uh, we should probably. Stop. Most of Aziz, I managed to. Uh, I, I noticed you're still here, mashallah.
4: Because
0: uh, the past couple of times you weren't able to stay. That, that's what I'm worried about is just people not being able to continue. So Today is
4: a, today's a federal holiday in America. So I, I have the day off.
0: Aha. So. Uh-huh. I see. Mashallah. Anyway, next time is the maulid and Nabawi Sharif.
3: Masha'Allah.
0: Um, and so we're actually, the, the next session, thank the Lord is not me. We're finally getting a proper metaphysician, which is my teacher and my, my beloved. And, and, uh, he doesn't like me saying these things, but, um, uh, city uh, Dr. Kareem Laham, and the the, 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 he was the person who came up with this project in the first place is the founder of our project the chief investigator um, and his book is really prior conceptually to my book and it's kind of the foundation that's what I want that's why I wanted to have the first session but um, he was going to come down and then you know this coincided with the fuel crisis um, which to this day weeks later there's still no fuel in my my local petrol station in Newnham no less which is one of the most upmarket um places in 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 England and I've got one of the smallest flats in the world there but uh, but um so he wasn't able to make it so uh, so uh, alhamdulillah finally uh, molana agreed to do um it online so inshallah this coming monday is the actual day of the molledge so you know we're all going to be whether we're in Sheikh Barbeque's, um gathering or Sheikh Abdul-Hakim or in America, in Zaytuna, I'm sure you have wonderful things. And wherever you're going to be, I wish you a, a very blessed molid, um, inshallah, Ta'ala. So thank you very much, everyone. And uh, assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much. Wa alaikum, Sidi
2: you have a full shifa. I absolutely mean, thank you melani
0: thank you Sidi. thank you look forward to seeing you inshallah the week after the next for the city cream session assalamu alaikum okay ta'ay <laughs> salamu ta'ay walakum